Good morning, church. Thanks. Um, I have a reading from Matthew 7, 24 to 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone that hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Amen. Thank you, Jasmine Church. You may be seated. Thank you, band, for leading us this morning. Uh, if you haven't already, please open up to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Uh, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Grateful to get to open up God's Word uh, with you. Again, Matthew 7, verse 24 through 29. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, the right half of uh, one of those old school Bibles with pages. Um, Matthew 7, verse 24 through 29. Jesus is concluding his sermon today. If you remember, these three chapters in Matthew have been a single address, um, and he's got one more illustration. Uh, it's a metaphor that captures the fullness, really, of his message and uh, instruction to his readers that he's been inviting them to live a completely different kind of life than maybe uh, their contemporaries and the people uh, in their communities. If you remember, he's used a number of different illustrations. He's looked at two roads, two trees, two prophets, and now he's coming to two houses. Um, and Jesus' final instruction then is all about how we're supposed to build our lives, how we are supposed to understand our lives. Um, and Dorothy Day, who is an activist and author, once explained that Christians are commanded to live in a way that doesn't make sense unless God exists. They're to live in such a way that does not make sense unless God exists. In other words, central aspects to your life and mine as disciples of Jesus should, in some respect, really not be a good idea unless God is real. They should confuse people. They should confuse us at times. We learn this idea uh, through Romans about obeying without all of the information. Um, and, I, and I think that leads to a life where central aspects of our life look foolish and otherworldly to a lot of people. And so in some respects, this doesn't mean we need to live a defensive life where we're constantly explaining ourselves to people, but we're living a curious life that people always have questions. So you might think, now, come on, people in Chicago are really open and tolerant. They have, they're, they're accepting of so many different kinds of views. Nobody's going to look bad on anybody. We're not foolish. But let's be real. Let's just remember what it is that we're saying is true, what it is that we believe. You and I believe that all of human history and all of human hope is based on the teachings and the person of a first century Palestinian carpenter who was executed by the government and rose from the dead three days later. Not only that, but we think that his death somehow cosmically pays the penalty for your moral imperfections and mine, and that his resurrection restores all righteousness, not just in this earth, but in all of the known galaxies and unknown galaxies all over creation. What's more, we now think that he's at the Father's right hand, and he's not the Father, but it's actually one being 
and he is the Son, and there's also this person, the Holy Spirit, who is also divine, but also distinct from the other two. And that man, that God-man, is currently sitting as human and as God at the right side of the Father, ruling and reigning as king over the universe, and is even making a plan to come back to set everything to rights. Are you with me? That's what we think. That's our story. It's not even like one thing that we believe. It's the central defining reality. If that's not true, none of this is, right? That's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy if you just like at the surface level. So here's what I want to suggest to you. Jesus does not make sense until he does. Jesus doesn't make sense until he does. So today, Jesus is going to tell us about the foundation of our life that makes no earthly sense. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the foundation of your life and the foundation of my life. And Jesus is going to do this by talking about two houses. See, as we heard Jasmine read it this morning, one house that's built or founded on the rock and one that's built on sand. The house on sand made so much sense at first. I mean, who, who doesn't want beachfront property? Who, who doesn't want to get as close to the water as possible? That makes perfect sense. After all, the house on sand, that's easy access not only to the beach, but it seems quicker, more cost-effective, more people will want to come and visit you there, right? You don't have to go down that deep. You don't have to go down that deep underground to establish a foundation. This makes so much sense. The house on the rock, that's like a lot, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of money. Uh, and it's removed from the comfortable proximity to some summertime pleasure. And so, yet in the end, what Jesus is saying in comparing these two houses is the house that at first makes so much sense very quickly doesn't make any. And the house that at first makes no sense very soon does. And the difference, he says, is all about the foundation. It's all about the foundation. Here's how we'll organize our time together today. First, we'll look at the substance of the foundation. In other words, what's the life Jesus is talking about? What's it made of? Then we'll look at the test of the foundation. What storms does Jesus have in mind? Third, we'll look at the authority of the foundation. What gives Jesus the right to tell us what to do with our lives? So we'll look at the substance, the test, and then the authority of the foundation Jesus is talking about. It's to that end I want to be helpful and available to you. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we uh, first perhaps need help admitting that... Um, being followers of Jesus is going to be a challenge. Uh, I know I often uh, want to balance out people-pleasing and people-loving me with uh, pleasing you and loving you, and yet I often overlook the tension that's created uh, in that. And so I pray that you would help me help my friends to just acknowledge that there are many aspects of the way of Jesus that will not make sense at first. Um, and yet, comfort us, encourage us, help us to see the beauty of this way of life Jesus has been talking about through this sermon. Um, help us to be grounded more in hope and, and specifically in trusting you and taking you at your word uh, today. And so as we open up your scriptures, I pray that you would do what you always do. Would you make it clear? Would you make it plain? And would you also, Father, use it to change us on the spot? Your word has that kind of miraculous healing power um, that we can be renewed right now. We can enjoy forgiveness right now. We can enjoy encouragement and comfort and peace and love in this very moment. And so by your spirit, would you do that for your glory and our good? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so church, what do you think makes a good life? What makes life secure? What makes it durable? What, what, what is it exactly that you're aiming for? Perhaps better, what, 
what is it that you think you have so that whatever you're aiming for will be accomplished? Is it money, good job, marriage, kids, free times, hobby, emotional, mental, health? All these are really good things. But no matter what your answer is, no matter how you um, would answer these sort of fundamental longings, it's pretty clear from the way that we build our lives. So no matter how we would answer that question in word, it's pretty clear how we build our lives. There are two things that rise to the surface about what is our foundation. And it's money and it's our work. It's money and it's our work. And Jesus has already brought this to our attention. He said you can't love God and mammon. And I think unbeknownst to us, when we were preparing to address or rather to walk through this letter, this is a fundamental theme from the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount on in through the end. And so we're becoming even more so, if we haven't realized this, as a, as a society, we are becoming more and more dependent on money and work. In fact, David Brooks, who's one of my favorite columnists at the New York Times, his column just a couple of weeks ago, he wrote about this by comparing our views of marriage and of career. See, while we generally know that Americans are marrying later and later, it's important to note that it isn't merely just a change in behavior. It's actually a change in values. And Professor Brad Wilcox, which uh, Brooks reported on at the University of uh, Virginia, has done extensive research on marriage, specifically how we view marriage within an overall vision of the good life, the life that we're trying to build for ourselves. And recently he reported that 75% of people, Americans, 18 to 40, think that work is vital to building a good life while only 32% of the same said that marriage was crucial. Not only so, but Pew Research uh, talked recently with parents about similar ideas, and Pew found that nearly 90% of parents believed that for their children to have a good life, they needed a good job, and only 20% of those parents thought that marriage and family was just as fundamental. Sociologist Andrew Cherlin even uses Jesus' building motif explaining that American society no longer sees marriage as a cornerstone, but as a capstone. In other words, it's not a building block to build a good life. It's the cherry on top after we've found everything else that we wanted. This is really interesting because, of course, we're not saying that marriage is good and necessary for a good and flourishing life. That's a message for another day, but the Bible is really clear that marriage is neither necessary nor is it for everyone. But what this research seems to suggest on the whole is that we think money and work give us a stronger foundation in life than relational intimacy and family. This is a fundamental shift in the way that we think about our lives. It paints a picture, particularly of Western society. See, while in the Eastern view, family continues to be and has been a cornerstone of life, Western people are building their life on something new, that thing that Jesus calls mammon. We even find it wise and acceptable and normative. So what's the meaning of this? Especially for Chicagoans in a modern Western city like ours that follow this Middle Eastern Savior, what's Jesus say about the foundation of the good life? Well, he begins in this particular passage that we're looking at with a transition. He says, everyone then. Do you see that in verse 24? That word then is very similar to the word therefore. So as usual, we have to look back to understand what he's about to say. So what has he just said? He said that a bunch of people who say, Lord, Lord, in the previous passage, do many good works in his name and are in fact, though, not building their life on him. So they're talking about Jesus. They're even saying we're doing these things for Jesus. We're doing these things for church. We're doing these things because we're a Christian. And Jesus is actually saying in doing that, they're, they're not even established on me. 
Look at verse 23. So if you're in verse 24, look back up to verse 23. He says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It feels a little harsh, but Jesus is trying to communicate a really important truth here. See, even though this group of people have spoken mightily, performed mightily, something was missing. And we're in Matthew, but Luke also records Jesus' sermon. And his recollection gives us some insight as to what's missing. In Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? In other words, their words and their actions are not matching, right? Then this is fantastic. So these dudes were saying, Lord, Lord, such like we're prophesying in Jesus' name, but Jesus is like, I never said say that. I never said prophesy that. And they're saying, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. He's like, I never told you to cast out those. That, that was not the thing that I asked you to do. In other words, so what are they doing? They're doing things for God and in God's name, but it was not God's will. Are you with me? This is, this is really important. This is really, really helpful. No matter how long you've been tracking with Jesus, I think it's healing because some things people say in Jesus' name, Jesus is like, I'm not taking credit for that. That was what they said. That's what she said. That's what he said. I didn't do that, right? Jesus says this in Luke, or again in Matthew 7, 21. He says, the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven, that's what I'm after. So Jesus says the foundation of the good life is for us to not just say things in Jesus' name, but to do what Jesus has actually said. So the foundation of the good life is doing the will of God. It's hearing the words of Jesus, and it's obeying them. It's obeying his words. And very often, those words don't make sense until they do. That's what Jesus is saying as we move into this final pericope, or this final movement of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 24 and following. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. You see, Jesus, as before, is juxtaposing two things. In this case, it's two houses. Metaphors of two different kinds of life, specifically two different ways of building a life or of grounding a life. One life is built on its own words and its own works, and one life is built on the words and works of Jesus. Not, not just listening to what he has said, but obeying them, obeying his words. Notice he says, one does them, that's the house on the rock, and one does not do them, that's the house on the sand. Therefore, our final consideration of the Sermon on the Mount should be this massive look back to what Jesus has just said and to ask ourselves a simple question. Have I heard those words and am I obeying them? So Jesus is bringing us a wonderful conclusion. He's saying, build your life on the words, and we, on, on my words, and we don't have to wonder, what has he said? He's like, I've literally been preaching for 45 minutes. I want you to look back at my notes, right? I've had wonderful scribes all right here, ready to record this. You're going to get it twice in the Gospels. You're going to have a wonderful recollection of what I've said, and the question to ask ourselves is, are we obeying it? Are we obeying it? He opened the address by inviting us to this counterintuitive way of life where the poor receive a kingdom. Mourners find comfort, the meek inherit glory. Those who long for righteousness are satisfied, the merciful receive mercy. The pure see God. The peacemakers get sonship and daughterhood. The persecuted are rewarded and vindicated. Church, are you building your life 
where that is true? Am I building my life on this ethic, on this kingdom, on this foundation? Then Jesus tells us to be salt and light. We're called to live lives that embrace love and truth, and we never choose one over the other. We are always fighting as people to bring love and truth together. And so we have to ask, am I doing that? Do I like a life of love, void of truth? Do I like a a life of truth, void of love? Then we're not building our lives on the rock. Then he explained that he is the point, our culmination, the kept word, the fulfillment of God's promises. All of the law and the prophets, Jesus says, hang on my life. I'm the one who fulfills all of them. So is he your hope? If all of your dreams are left unmet, and yet God's kept word is the only thing that you have, are you satisfied? Is that enough for me and you? He walked us through this fracture of our emotions, the brokenness of our body, the division of our soul, and he says, I'm the one who makes you whole. I'm the one who makes you whole. So are you seeking wholeness in him daily or somewhere else? Are you seeking for renewal of your mind, of your body, of your spirit, of your very emotions? Is he your healer? He showed us how to pray and give and fast. And we could do all of those things, those, those wonderful habits of the heart and spiritual formation. We can do them for our own glory so everybody knows we're the praying type. Or we do them from, to the Lord because we know he hears us. We learn that mammon has a grip on our hearts. Jesus said you can't love God and money. You cannot have both. We can't build our life in this world and expect residency in the next. So are you obeying that word? Who has your heart, money or the Lord? Jesus then three times tells us, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Remember, mammon is the thing that makes us anxious most of all. When mammon is our foundation, we forget what life's about. We forget our value. We forget our father. We forget our neighbor. And when Jesus is our foundation, we get our memory back. We understand afresh who we are and who our neighbor is and who our father is. Next, we battled hypocrisy and our tendency to judge others. See, a life built on sand has to judge others because we're already feeling a little bit self-conscious when the weather changes, right? So we got to go, well, my house isn't that bad. Look at that other person. And Jesus is like, if you've got a speck in your eye, deal with that first. Deal with that first, or you can't see rightly. So is this true in your life? Are you open to Jesus pointing out the sins in your heart, the brokenness in your story, and the need in your life so he can make you well and make you helpful and useful in his kingdom? Jesus explains when we're anchored in his will. Anything and everything we ask will be given. Whatever we seek, we'll find. Every door we knock on will be open, which takes us down two roads to hear two prophets, to investigate two bushes and two trees and two types of fruit, all of which helps us to discern the difference between the truth and a lie. You see, when our lives are built on the words of Jesus, this is one of the fundamental realities. It becomes instinctive to us to know the difference, perhaps, between the voice of the Father and the voice of shame the voice of the truth, and the voice of a lie. So have you heard this word, or have you also obeyed it? Have you merely let it go in one ear and out the other? This is Jesus' question for us. It's an unsettling one. These are the words that you and I should build our life upon. To be sure, there are other words, but Jesus has collected an entire ethic here in three chapters and then said, if you build your life on this, it'll be like building your life on a rock, something solid. And yes, it takes more time, And yes, it is more costly. And yes, it will not make any sense, much sense, many, many days. But this is the foundation. 
Jesus' sermon is our foundation. Jesus' words are our foundation. Jesus himself is our foundation. Jesus says that's the substance of our foundation. Building our lives on Jesus is building our lives on his words. So we cannot say, I follow Jesus and not obey his words and not obey this ethic. Many of us have had seasons of life where that was true of us. Said, yes, I'm a Christian. And then we look at our lives and you go, there is zero evidence that that is true in your life or in mine. And then often we see somebody else who's claiming the name of Jesus and we're like, I don't see any fruit, right? And Jesus is saying, that's not me. What I am is about this life of harmony, without hypocrisy, not perfection, but without hypocrisy, without a disconnect between our words and our life. And this won't make sense until it does. It won't make sense until it does. Jesus doesn't simply compare two foundations, rock and sand. He also compares what happens to those two houses when storms come. After all, it's when rain comes, when wind starts blowing, and when life really starts moving in on us that the stability and reality and the reliability of a foundation is exposed. Look at verse 24 again. and We'll pick up in between the spaces we've just considered. Jesus says, and everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And hear, hear this. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Then he juxtaposes it. And everyone who hears these words of mine, <clears throat> in other words, they just listen, they just hear, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Same storm comes, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, Jesus says, and great was the fall of it. In other words, it was catastrophic. See, the value of a foundation is about its ability to keep a house standing. The value of a foundation is found in its ability to keep something standing. It's not about how cheap it is. It's not about how quickly you can pour it. It's not about how much, what it looks like to somebody else who passes by. It's not about it looking nice. It's not about what makes us feel good. The value of a foundation is its ability to keep a house standing. You see, taking the extra time, the extra money, the extra effort and sacrifice and surrender and faith of building your life on the rock may not make much sense until it does. Until the rains come, until the winds blow, until the flood rises and your house is still standing, then it all makes sense. Are you with me? Then it all makes sense. You know why life is so hard? <laughs> it's because sometimes we don't have that clear of a picture. It's really challenging to build something. You go, just, just wait, I promise. This is going to work out in the end, right? You're just like, just stay with me. I know this doesn't make any sense. I, I know, I know, I know. But all these things are coming. So what is it about that wrestling match? What is it about that? See, what really we're having to contend with in this passage is what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the danger of self-deception. And as a 21st century person, I hate this idea very much because it cuts against the grain of trusting myself. But he says it's the danger of self-deception. To put it more bluntly, usually we don't do what Jesus says because we don't think it will matter. We don't think it'll matter. We don't build our life on the rock because it's not raining yet, Right? This is what people were making fun of Noah. You remember that story? You're like, you're building a massive boat. This is a bad idea. It hasn't rained around here for a very long time. And that's a, that's a very big boat. That's a very big boat. Right? And he just is like, yeah, I know. 
right? And he just keeps hammering. Away. I know he's not contending with them about the climate of the area. He is not telling them that it makes sense to build a boat that sits in the middle of the desert. He's, he's not arguing that. What is he saying? The rain, the rain is not here yet. The wind is not here, but it's coming. It's coming. I can't wait to hang out with Noah and just go, dude, that was an illustration for all of life. That's crazy. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know that? See, we listen to false prophets, don't we? This is what Jesus has just told us. Because we don't think that the ride, wide road is actually going to lead to destruction. It's like, this is so nice. I don't think this is going to end poorly at all. This is really, really comfortable. We don't ask. We don't seek. We don't knock. Why? Because we don't pray. Because we don't think it matters. We don't take the speck out of our eye first. And we just go after the, eye, or the speck in somebody else's eye. Because we don't think taking the one out of our eye first is going to be for our good. Because we already know that they've got a problem. So let's deal with that. I don't think it's going to be worth it. We love mammon because we don't think it'll really hurt us or anybody else. It'll only help us. We fast and pray and give to be seen because we don't believe anybody actually sees us. And so we have to make ourselves visible to others. We don't seek healing and wholeness from Jesus because we think he's the one who has fractured our life. He is the one who hurt us. We don't join Jesus in the renewal of all things as salt and light because we don't think that's really an effective approach. In fact, we have some other ideas that are not very salty and not very bright that I wish he would consider because they're going to work a lot better in this environment, a lot better in this city. We don't mourn or seek righteousness or mercy or poorness of spirit because we don't think those things lead to the good life. Are you with me? Like The reason we don't build our house on the rock is because we think we already see clearly the storm is not coming. There's not a cloud in the sky. Everything is fine. We don't think a storm is coming. Or if it does, we think a sandy foundation is going to be good enough. I got this. I got this. It'll be fine. But we're deceived. Lloyd-Jones is saying we are self-deceived. This is what we might call a happy illusion. We actually don't even want anybody to tell us this is not true because it feels good. It's fine. Why would you ruin this wonderful feeling with the truth? Because storms do come, don't they? They always come. This is a wonderful thing for, for many of us to remember about being with a little bit older saints. But folks who have been tracking with Jesus longer than we've been alive. Not because necessarily with age comes wisdom, but plenty of people with age have incredible wisdom who are able to help us see like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember trying to build my life in my 20s, what that was like. Word, what was that like? It must have been really different. Did y'all have the internet, you know? Um, and they're like, yes. <laughs> um, but ultimately learning, how is it that you believed that a storm wouldn't come, and then how did it come? How is it that you built your life that it was already ready to endure a really rough storm when it just looked like blue skies? And they're able to give us understanding and wisdom. See, spiritual doubt always creeps in at some point. At some point, perhaps, a trauma is just not going away. Or maybe a marriage that you thought, this is beautiful and it is absolutely life-proof. All of a sudden, divorce is now on the table. Children are increasingly out of control. Work and money have lost or no longer are fulfilling. Cancer shows up. Death changes the composition of your family. All of a sudden, these storms show up that are inevitable. Addiction is relentless. See, wind and water start pummeling at this foundation. We think we can build a good life, a stable life, a flourishing life without God's word, without obedience, without trusting Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that life will be washed away. 
that life, that stability will be washed away just like a house built on sand in a hurricane because it's not built upon something that's enduring, something grounded in a higher joy and a deeper reality that chaos and suffering can't touch. You see, this is, I think, why it's even more deceptive because work in particular can give you purpose and it can give you money and it seems like it's working. You start to cast out or, or, or forecast catastrophe and you go, I got this. If this happens, I got this. It's fine. Work can give us purpose and money, but it can't give you value. Marriage can give you intimacy and children, but it cannot secure your future. Cancer can take away your body, but it can't touch your soul hidden in Christ. Death can fracture your family, but in Christ, our family is actually not part of this world. Do you see, Jesus is on to something here. He is life-proofing. He's death-proofing your life long before you and I are wise enough to believe that that actually is going to happen. Later in Matthew, Jesus walks his disciples into a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was a place that did not follow the God of the Bible. Not unlike Chicago, it had just recently renamed itself after a false god and a leader or a human uh, leader, an emperor in the area. And he goes into that space and he asks them a question. He simply asks, who do people say I am? What's my reputation? What are people saying about me? Um, and the Apostle Peter, after the disciples throw out all these other ideas, bless their hearts that were inaccurate. <clears throat> in Matthew 16, uh, Simon Peter replies, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here's what Jesus, how he answers. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that's Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Think about that. Peter has just realized Jesus' identity, who he is. This has been something that Jesus has been exposing throughout Matthew's gospel, not the least of which through the Sermon on the Mount that happened a couple of chapters previously. But Jesus takes that confession and helps him, helps Peter see that it's the very foundation of life together as the church, the people of God. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is our foundation. And he says, when the gates of hell come with its wind and its rain and its flood, Jesus says, that won't prevail. That won't prevail. Scholars have spilt a lot of ink about the violence a gate could, um, you know, execute against somebody. Um, gates don't seem very threatening, um, but they're holding something back, right? Um, and so what Jesus is saying, no matter what is behind that, no matter what power it possesses, you're good. It's not about the viability of a gate to be a good weapon. It's about anything that is behind that gate cannot touch you, cannot come after you, namely Satan, sin, and death. Right now, in order to establish upon this rock, we must first admit and confess something fundamental about building our life. We have not done a good job. In other words, we failed the test. We have all been self-deceived by sin and hubris, and many of us have been living a life this year. They've been trying to rebuild your life with the exact same blueprint of the previous life that has just fallen apart, right? And this is why it's so important to look within and to look at God's word, because it's easy to believe a oh, house fell apart because of the market, that relationship fell apart because of that other person and they were messed up, you know, and as opposed to looking within and saying, wait, how was I building my life? 
See, the next relationship won't heal what the previous relationship couldn't fulfill if you're asking marriage to do something that only Jesus can. The next job will not bring fulfillment if you're asking work to be your hope and your foundation. The the bump in pay is not going to help you establish the life that you have always wanted if you think that money can establish your life. Are you with me? That we cannot go back to the previous blueprint. Jesus is saying you need a different house, you need a different architect, you need a different GC. You needed a completely different plan because you need a new foundation. See, this is our gospel hope. When the storm of sin wiped away our lives, Jesus stepped into our storm. See, this this is so important. We need need to hear the voice of the Father in this. God, help us in this. The Father has not seen your life fall apart and said, I'm going to give you another chance. Figure it out this time. You, You didn't do a good job the first time, but I'm a God of second chances, so try again. Right, this sort of distant Father that is waiting for you to please him with your second, third, fourth, fifth house that you're trying to build. That's not the voice of the Father. That's the voice of shame. What the Father says is, you don't have to build your life. My son is the one who can build it. My son is the one who actually stepped into that storm. He endured the storm with you, the Father says. He died on a cross and received Satan's sin and death's harshest blows. And yes, he did fall, just like a sandy house, but he didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, and now he can build our lives, not on whatever you think is hopeful, but on himself. He will build a new life for you by grace through faith on himself, Jesus Christ, who can never be touched by death again. See, in him, we can pass every test this world throws at us because Jesus has already passed the test for us. He is a sure foundation. Now, I think it's when we start building our lives like that that don't make sense. That all of a sudden, you and I, just by inhabiting a space like Logan Square or Hermosa or the city of Chicago in general, becomes, becomes this testimony to a life that is built in a different way. Because storms are going to hit everybody, right? And the hope is to not say, I've got this better blueprint. Why don't you try this next time? Become a minimalist. That'll really help, right? Take up these different... No, it, it's this life that, yes, is weak and is broken, but it's not built on its own strength. To not come to you and say, wow, you never cry, but it seems like when you are weary, when you are lamenting, when you are broken, it doesn't crush you. The storm doesn't wipe you away. You see how when you build your life on a rock, your house itself, your life itself becomes this living, breathing demonstration of the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus' words in his very being are our foundation. He alone can and has passed life's worst storms and devastating tests. But this idea may still feel like sandpaper to you. Many of us are fine with someone saying that the story of Jesus is good for grounding your moral life. That's good if that helps you. I'm glad and happy for you. This is like me and pets. If you have a dog that you love, I am so happy for you. That's wonderful. That pet is great. I do not want a dog. I don't care how wonderful your story is with your dog, but I am thrilled for you. Many of us 
have that view of the moral life. It's great if that's helpful for you. Wonderful. Don't want one. Don't need that. I'm building my life in a different way. In fact, I think it's even more fundamental than that, which if you'll give me grace, this isn't really exactly how I see pets, but what gives you the right, many of us say, to tell me how to live my life? What gives Jesus the right to tell me how to live my life? You know what's interesting? I think that's exactly what everybody was wrestling with the first time they heard the Sermon on the Mount. Look, look at this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. This gives us a great help to know how to wrestle with what Jesus has just said. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Do you know what Christians are really good at doing? Acting like they're not confused. Acting like they don't have questions. Not being curious. These people just heard Jesus in the flesh teach them for three chapters. I get it. It's like 40 minutes. Whatever. It's not, they didn't know it was going to be three chapters. But they just heard him preach. And there wasn't like, way to go, Jesus. I don't know what he said, but let's just clap. It's just like, Holy Spirit moment. We're so excited. They didn't like go, what? What, what did you just say? <laughs> they were astonished. They were baffled. They were curious. They didn't have a framework for him. Can you imagine if the church constantly admitted that we had questions? Can you imagine? That we're supposed to be the most curious people in the world and we act like we have it all figured out. You don't, I don't. If we would just admit that, I think they would be pretty beautiful. When we look back at the start of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's really interesting because he moves away from the crowd. You remember this? He gets on a hillside, his disciples come, but he's trying to create separation from the crowd, the horde of people who are following him and learning from him. And yet by the end of the sermon, who's there? The crowd. I love this. Jesus walks away from them, but they couldn't help themselves. They keep following him. They're drawn back to this person. They are drawn back to his words because something foundational feels like it's going on, even if they don't understand it. They've been drawn in. And that's their response. It's astonishment. Are you astonished by Jesus? Are you astonished by what he has just said, or is it just like, yeah, I've heard that before? See, the question the scriptures never ask is, have you heard it before? Ever. Jesus always asks, do you believe? Have you heard my words, and are you obeying them? Do you believe? Have you given your life to this? Remember, the message on the whole that Jesus is communicating is he's reframing righteousness around the heart. This is the message that they are hearing over and over again from the beginning of the Beatitudes, the blessed bees, all the way to here. And they are astonished. That word in the original language, in Greek at least, is ekpleso. It means to be greatly amazed and astounded. Words have been taken from them. They're sitting there in awe. When Jesus was a young boy, he actually got lost for three days. Um, if you haven't heard this story, it's pretty hilarious. You should go back uh, and read it. In Luke chapter 2. He's 12 years old and his parents find him interacting with the teachers, the scribes, the um, religious leaders of the day in the temple. And his parents, which, I mean, as a parent, I can go, that would have been an awkward moment, right? Um, where have you been? We got a consequence. You're the son of God and you're spitting fire here in uh, the temple. It's pretty amazing. But here's how they respond. Luke chapter 2 records it this way. And all who heard him, that's Jesus, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were what? Astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in your great distress. 
right? And he says, did you not know I'd be about the Father's business? Everyone, from mom to those hearing to the other teachers, are astonished, just like the crowd in Matthew chapter 7. See, when Jesus teaches something, people are astounded. His words are amazing. Why? Why are the crowds on the hillside and the temple and Jesus' own parents ekplesso? Why has that gripped them? Look at 29 again. Verse 29. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. See, it was common in the day for the religious teachers to get together and to ask a question. What do you think is like the greatest commandment? We have a record of this when people came to Jesus and asked a question like that, and they'd all debate. They'd all interpret a particular word and all debate on what they believed about what God had said, right? This was, this was typical, but what was atypical is Jesus, even as a 12-year-old, and as he begins his public ministry, is not interpreting God's word. He is speaking God's word. He, he is not saying, here's what I think about what God has said. Throughout the sermon, he said what? Here's what I say to you. You've heard it said, but here's what I say to you. He's speaking on his own authority. It's unadulterated, uninterpreted, direct revelation and truth. That's astonishing. He's speaking with authority. He's speaking as one who has not just heard from God, but one who is God. And that's expleso. That is astonishing. They're astonished. Because he was leaving them no wiggle room. And this is what I think we don't like. He was speaking as God. He was speaking as the foundation of the world and of love and of truth and of the meaning of life. They are astonished by his authority. And we should be too. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, famously explains in his book, Mere Christianity, that you must make your choice. Either this man, that's Jesus, was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something else, something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, many of us hear the Sermon on the Mount, we go, that's interesting. It's an interesting way to live life. If that's a good moral teaching for you, I'm happy for you. Jesus actually didn't leave us any wiggle room to think that way. Because he's not just saying, here's a way. What does he say? I'm the way. This is the foundation of life. So this is our question. Friends, is Jesus your foundation? Are you taking him at his word? See, he alone enables us to endure the tests of this life because he has already secured for us the life and joy, and hope of the next. And living with that reality will not make sense until it does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask uh, for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. There are so many ways that I have tried to build and rebuild my life on what is ultimately sandy, shaky ground and not the rock. whether because of fear or shame or control or pride. Forgive me, forgive us. Would you even reveal to us how we're building our life, what it is that we are trusting more than your son? See, many of us have endured such crazy storms and we've seen you be faithful. 
Many of us are in those storms right now. And our foundation is being tested. Many of us believe that that storm's never going to come. And so we can do as we please. And so wherever, wherever my sisters and my brothers find themselves in the building or in the testing or in understanding this authority that you have in their life, would you encourage us today to leave behind things that we trust that are not hopeful and healing and to once again allow you to build our life on something that is enduring, hopeful, and true. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us, church? Mm -hmm.